Uh, if you've been here, uh, we were at Mark chapter 10 last week, and you know that Jesus was in Jericho last week, and he's moving north to, uh, actually he's going south, but he's going high in elevation up to Jerusalem, and he's going on the pilgrimage towards Passover. And if you're new to the Bible, new to Jesus and all of that, this is the highlight for the Jewish year, and this is where they celebrate God's deliverance. God had been faithful to a group of people called Israel. And now they celebrate that by the Passover uh, sacrifice. So Jesus is with thousands of people and he's making his way. And look at what happens. Uh, verse 1 of Mark 11. There are three scenes we're going to look at tonight. Three scenes in Mark 11 verses 1 through 23 that when you put it together is going to make a profound statement. Because the setting here is Jesus is making his way towards the temple. And what we need to know if you're new to the Bible or anything is that the temple is the most holy place on the earth. Jerusalem is the most holy city. This is God's space. And God, the community of people called Israel, believed, inhabited, lived, came, visited the temple. So this mountain on Jerusalem where this temple was set was the most revered space. And so we're going to read verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem, the holy city, and they came to Bethpage and Bethany, cities on the way, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. Now, if anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. Uh, so verse 4, they went out and they found a colt in the street, tied at the doorway. And as they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying the colt? And they answered as Jesus told them to, and the people let them go. And when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw the cloaks over it, he sat on it. Now, so far, this is just weird. I mean, uh, how many of you ride a horse anywhere? All right, that's just, this, is, this is weird. Uh, how many of you have a hybrid? Okay. None of you. Isn't that interesting? Neither do I. So there we go. We're all equal. Uh, we, we drive cars. We drive SUVs. We take public transport. You ride, you ride your bike. We don't go on horses. But Mark is setting the scene because Jesus is going towards Jerusalem to do something specific. Three scenes. First scene is the king is coming on a cult. Let's just keep reading. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. And those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, and now there's like quotes, Hosanna, uh, that's Lord, save now. So, so they're going along the road. Jesus is now on an animal. They're putting stuff in front of him. All of this for us is new. But for the people reading Mark's gospel that he wrote down, and for the people hearing it, they get exactly what's happening. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Psalm 118. Uh, the Psalms were sung as God's people would go from Jericho or wherever they lived up to Jerusalem. They would sing songs just like we do in church. Uh, before they went to worship at the temple, before they offered sacrifices, they would sing these psalms, these songs of God's faithfulness. So they're singing these songs, but now they're singing them at Jesus, which is weird. Verse 10, blessed is, the coming, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. The first scene here uh, is the scene of a king 
riding up uh, on a cult. Now, now, what's the deal here? Uh, when I was growing up, many, any of you, were you part of a church growing up as a kid that did like a big Easter musical or anything, or is it just me? I grew up on the East Coast. We were awkward that way. We do this big Easter musical. And I remember that we would do the week before Easter, Palm Sunday, that the kids would get all these branches. Most of them were plastic. Made no sense. But it was New York. I guess they didn't cut down trees. Anyway, but we would do this whole like reenactment of Jesus. We didn't use a real animal. But somehow this guy who was pretending to be Jesus coming in. And I thought it was cute and fun. I just didn't get it. But if you're a little confused, don't be surprised. The people hearing this are not confused. Their minds are going to the symbolic uh, things of an animal occult and the cloaks and a king. They're thinking Zechariah 9.9, uh, 9, which is exactly what you're thinking. When you think, you're like, oh, of course that's a reference to Zechariah. No, you weren't. <laughs> you liar. Zechariah is in the Bible, by the way. Yeah, it, it, it's in the Bible. But it's a prophecy in reference to a king that's to come. So Zechariah 9.9, I think we've got it on the screen behind me for time. Otherwise, it'll take you 20 minutes to find it. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Zion is Jerusalem. Zion is the people of God, Israel. So rejoice greatly, people of Israel. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. Those are people who worship God. See, and then here's a phrase, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey or a cult, uh, on a cult, the fowl of a donkey. And here's why. I will take away the chariots of Ephraim, it's a reference to war, and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. What is happening here is everyone walks up the, the 15 miles up from Jericho to Jerusalem, and the pilgrims walk. But the only person who would ride on a cult would be someone who is royal. You don't, you don't ride up on an animal. You walk the last trek to Jerusalem. So Jesus riding on a cult, a cult that has never been ridden. Uh, if you were a king back in the day or someone special, you would have an animal that's, that is your own. It's all symbolic. That's why they break out in song. Hosanna, Lord save. Hosanna in the highest uh, here comes the one, the son of David, the king of David. Uh, they see what we're having trouble seeing. Wow, Jesus, who's the miracle worker, Jesus is the great teacher, but now he's coming in as a king. And he rides up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the center of the nation of Israel. It's where their king would rule. Now for those of you, a little bit of boring stuff, but it's helpful to understand this first scene. Israel at this time, they have the temple, the place to worship, God's most holy space. But there is a Roman king over Jerusalem. They're not self-ruling. They're under the authority of another government. So all throughout the time of Jesus, people are anticipating that God is going to come again, like he did at Passover, which celebrates Israel in Egypt with a foreign king and God rescues his people. He loves his people and he takes them out and gives them their own land. What they're asking God to do is come again, set us free. They're living in their physical land, but they're not free. They're slaves to the Roman government. And so they're thinking Jesus is going to be a great king. 
The first scene is a king riding on a colt, but Mark gives this little, little nuance that we just blow by. Verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem. You would expect the king goes to the palace and takes over. And he went where? Into the temple courts. If you're a king, you go to the palace and you, you, you take Herod and you kick him out and you rule. Jesus, a king, does not go to the palace. He goes to the temple courts and he looks around, but it's late and nothing happens. So Jesus is a king, but interestingly enough, he's not the king you're expecting. So Mark gives us three scenes in chapter 11 that lay out Jesus is a king, but he's not the kind of king that the Jews were expecting. And tonight you may be thinking, well, Jesus, what does it mean for him to be a king? Let me just tell you this. If you choose to follow Jesus, he is a great king. He is a great leader, but it is not like you expect. Some of us, we have struggles following Jesus because we have these expectations. If I choose to follow Jesus, this is going to happen. And we all do it. We all have our view of what we think should happen when we choose to follow Jesus. But we got to remember, he is a king. He's a ruler, but he works in ways that we're not expecting. That is scene number one. Now, scene number two picks it up in verse 12, and it's about a tree that Jesus kills, which makes no sense. Here we go. Verse 12. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, that's the key phrase, fig tree in leaf. He went to find out if it had any fruit. And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. So he curses the tree. And his disciples heard him say it. Now jump down. We're going to skip a bit. Go to verse 19. Because Mark stops the fig story and then he picks it up in verse 19. When the evening came, Jesus said, uh, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. And in the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Uh, now, what is the deal with uh, Jesus killing a tree? And how does it have anything to do with Jesus riding on an animal and he's a king? What Mark is doing is what he does all throughout the gospel. If you studied it, Mark, like good writers, they take random scenes. Any of you, like back in the day, ever see Lost, that when, when Lost was out there? How many of you got lost during Lost? Like, because what, what, what they did was Lost was a show about taking all of these random scenes that made no connection, no sense. And as the series went on, eventually some of them reconnected. Well, Mark does a similar thing. He takes a story about Jesus writing on an animal. He's a king, but he doesn't go to the palace. Why not? Then he takes a story about a tree that Jesus is going to curse because it doesn't produce fruit. And then we're going to get to the third scene, and in the end, the stories interpret one another. So until you understand the tree, the story about Jesus riding on the donkey, the story about Jesus in the temple doesn't make sense. If you're confused, congratulations. We'll get it all together at the end. Now, what is, how many of you have fig trees in your like, yard or whatever? Someone did. You do have a fig tree? Yeah. When, is, when do fig uh, trees start to leaf out? Is it in the spring here or a little bit, little bit later, early summer? Well, in the Middle East, they, they leaf in the spring and they get little buds. Uh, in Hebrew, they call them pagim. And what they do is 
in the Middle East, they don't necessarily wait till they ripen in the end of summer. So in Israel, spring you get a leaf and you get the little buds and they grow. You can actually eat them before they ripen, but you don't get the harvest until August, September. So Mark says it had no fruit on it for it wasn't the season of the figs. Why would Jesus curse a tree if it's not the season? Mark's not saying that. Mark is saying it's spring, it has leaves. If it has leaves, it should have fruit buds. There should be some evidence that it has life. Now, it's not the season of the figs. It's not August, September when it becomes ripe. But Jesus is saying if you have a leaf, you should be producing some buds, some fruit. So Jesus uh, kills the tree. He curses the tree. Why? He's not very Oregonian. Tree killer. No, he is doing something that all the prophets do. The prophets, when they would come and speak the word of God, they would use visual illustrations. Uh, how many of you are visual learners? Like if you show me a picture, I get it. I, you show me like line. This is why I could never be an engineer. I could never write code because code is like, like numbers and letters. Like that makes no sense. I'm a graphic learner. Show me a picture and I get it. If I'm going to do a recipe, no picture, no make it. Like, you know, it's, I need to see the picture and, and then like, oh, and when mine doesn't look like it, I throw it out. You know, like, I get it. So prophets, because they didn't have like iPads and like websites, they would do stuff that would show what they were saying. So Jesus is about to say something important. But like a prophet, he speaks with a visual illustration. The leaves are on the tree, which means it should be producing fruit, but it's not. And when Jesus sees something that should be producing fruit and it doesn't, he speaks to it. He created it to bear fruit. It doesn't bear fruit. Therefore, it is not worth it and it will be destroyed. And Peter gives the little hint that Mark tells us from the root. He's going to destroy it from the root. Now, by the looks in your face, you're like, Jose, I'm trying to get what you're saying. I'm just not getting it. Good. You're not supposed to get it yet. Because Mark gives us three scenes. King riding into Jerusalem. But he's not the king you're expecting. Now, we have, he's like a prophet, and he's speaking the word of God, and he's cursing a fig tree, poor fig tree. But it's not producing fruit. Now, all of that leads us to the third scene. Scene number three is in verse 15. And this is where we want to get like the meaning of the entire passage. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered, Jeruse entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. So Jesus is obviously irate. Remember, he just cursed the fig tree. We see that at the beginning of the story. We see that at the end. And in the middle, this bit about the temple. Um, verse 17, And he taught them and he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So Jesus, like a prophet, he does the visual Fig tree, not producing fruit, it must be destroyed from the root. Then he goes to the temple, he sees something he doesn't like, similar to the fig tree, that's not producing the right fruit. The temple is supposed to do one thing, Jesus sees something else, 
So like he cursed the fig tree, he now comes in and he turns the money changers over and he starts telling people, you should be carrying this. This is not right. Notice the parallel, the tree and the temple. And then he speaks these words that are not his own words. He actually quotes two prophets that were speaking to God's people. And he says, the message that they spoke to God's people hundreds of years ago now applies to you. He quotes Isaiah, and then he quotes Jeremiah. Don't worry about their names. We'll get to that in a minute. What we want to see is that Jesus is turning the tables, and inside of it, there is a mess. Now, what's happening? There, if you go to the temple in the time of Jesus, there are outer courts and inner courts. Remember, we don't get it because we meet in the school. Kids are over in a cafeteria. We don't see space as holy for the most part. Most of us don't like think this is more holy than your living room. But in the time of Jesus, you got to remember, God had said, I will dwell, not at your house, I will dwell at my place. And it's the temple. So now Jesus is at the heart of where God meets his people and he sees a mess. He says, my house, look at, um, look at the quote he has in verse 17. Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Now, it says that the temple, the chief priests and teachers heard this and wanted to kill him. And now you should see why. This is actually the house of Yahweh. This is the creator God's house. Jesus steps in, flips the tables, tells everyone, stop doing that, stop doing that. And he says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. In other words, you are distorting my place, which is bold moves. But on top of that, what Jesus is doing is rebuking the leaders. We'll go back. The tree has leaves. It should bear fruit. In the temple, something should be happening where Jesus is speaking. And he's saying the wrong thing's happening. A little bit of background, this is a side rabbit trouble, this is going to be helpful. Uh, there's outer court where the Jews and non-Jews could come, Jews and Gentiles, could worship in the outer court. It was huge. It was about 35 acres of land. And there was a wall around it, and that was close to God's holy place. But it was, if you were non-Jewish, you could at least go there. Uh, but once you got to the end of that, you got to the inner courts, which was for those who had relationship with God only. This was so important. We don't see this as important, but you got to get it. I'm going to put up a quote from a sign that was put up at the wall where the court of the Gentiles, where non-Jews could come, and that holy place. If you weren't Jewish, you couldn't go past that wall. Here's what the sign says. No foreigner may enter within the railing and enclosure that surround the temple. So you can't go past here. Anyone apprehended shall himself to blame for his consequent death. So if I am not Jewish and I go past my outer court into this holy place, the temple guards can get me and arrest me and beat me, and I could be put to death for desecrating God's space. This is so serious. But here's what Jesus is going to say. You guys put up signs to keep the non-Jewish people out. But look at what you've done. Where is the money? Where are the money tables? Where are they exchanging currency? Where are they buying and selling? They are doing it in the court of the Gentiles. If you're lost, hang in there. This is huge. The original purpose of this space 
was if you and I weren't Jewish, we could come into this court and we could pray to God. We'd have to come on his terms to get any further. We couldn't offer a sacrifice, but we could come to the court of the Gentiles. We could meet with God. We can learn here. We can grow. But about A.D. 30, just about the time of Jesus, before this, they would buy sacrifices for the temple outside the court of the Gentiles. So even this 35 acres was clear for you to pray and worship and consider God. But around the time of Jesus, the, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, the leaders that want to kill Jesus, they decided it would be better to take the place where you would buy and sell animals and exchange currency because it came from all over the world and you're going to pay your temple tax. Every Jew had to pay a tax each year to upkeep the temple. You would do that outside the court of the Gentiles. They decided to move it in. Here's why. They realized if they controlled the buying and selling and the money exchanging, they could get a piece of the action. They can get a cut. They can get a commission. So the, the leaders decided, let's bring it into the court of the Gentiles so we can keep monitor, control, but really they had turned it into a mall. So what God had intended was a space for people who are considering him to come and worship. They made a marketplace. And when Jesus walks in, he's like, this is not supposed to happen. Just like a tree, if it has leaves, it should bear fruit. This has leaves, so to speak. There's stuff going on, but it's wrong. And I have come to set it right. Now, why is Jesus so against it? Why does he flip the money changers and their tables upside down. He is speaking about God's design from the beginning for his house. Now, all this has been history and ancient stuff, but I want us to think about what church is all about. Like I said, these three scenes have an implication on how you and I think about what we do. What Jesus is saying is there is a right way to worship and, and there should be some allowance in their place of worship to let people come who are not yet following we should create space for them. But instead, they turned it around and look at what Jesus says. He says at the end of verse 17, um, but you have made it a den of robbers. My house we call the house of prayer for all nations. You have made it a den, a safe place for robbers. That quote from Isaiah is a quote where Isaiah the prophet, 700 years before Jesus, is saying God's space, the temple, will be a place in the future where all nations will come and worship. 700 years before Jesus comes, God tells this messenger, the temple, which is for the people of God, it, the goal of it is that all nations will come and worship me. Look at what the Jewish leaders had done. Instead of letting all nations come and worship, they had crowded out the space that was designed for those who are considering God and made it a marketplace. And Jesus is saying, you've lost your primary calling. You, you're mixing it up. The temple is a place of welcome. The temple is a place where people are called to pray. But instead, it's a place where robbers, a.k.a. the leaders of the temple, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, he's calling them the crooks. He's saying, your heart is far from the heart of God, and, and what you're supposed to oversee is a place where people can come to worship. You are now making the very people I long to bring in, you're pushing them out. You're putting a sign saying, if you pass this wall, you're going to die when the whole point of the temple is to be the place where anyone who has a heart to meet with God can meet with God. They flip the whole meeting place upside down, and Jesus comes to set things right. 
Now, if you don't think this is a crazy place, Josephus, the historian, tells us that during the time of Jesus, that on one Passover week, the week that they're going to celebrate, 255,000 lambs were sacrificed. In 35 acres in one week, 255,000 lambs are passing through this court, basically leaving no room for people who are not yet in relationship with God to enter relationship with God. And that is what Jesus is after. So let's, let's kind of pull it all together. What, does the, what is the connection between the temple and the fig tree? Because Mark is squeezing these stories. First, a king is coming, but he's not like you expect. And this king is coming to rebuke something and call something else into being. So the fig tree helps us in, interpret the story of the temple. What Jesus is saying in very clear words is that the temple, and this is what got him killed, the temple is about to be destroyed. Now this is the most holy place. This is the most sacred place. And Jesus is saying, the tree must be destroyed from the root. So Jesus, unlike what some people think, he just didn't come to fix the way the system was. He didn't just come to like, like as a reformer, say, oh, just, just move the animals out and let the Gentiles in. What Jesus is saying is that the people totally missed the plot line and they missed the purpose of the temple. They missed the heart of God. But here's the good news. The good news is Jesus doesn't come to condemn the people. No. He does not speak a word of rebuke against the people. He speaks it against the leaders. The leaders are wrong, but Jesus is a king. And like a king or a president or a prime minister, you can set things right. Where you see injustice, you can make things right. So Jesus comes to make it right. And here's what he says. The temple is no longer going to be the place where one group of people get to meet with God. My heart, Jesus says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. My heart's all the nations. Jesus has come not just to rescue one group of people, Israel, in the Middle East. He's come to rescue everyone, everywhere, for all time. And in a symbolic act, what Jesus is doing, right before he's going to go to the cross, to be the Passover sacrifice. We'll get to that so weeks from now. Jesus, like the Passover lamb, all of these symbols point back to Jesus. Jesus is saying, I have come to break down the barriers for people who want to have faith in God. And I'm coming to invite people from, yes, the Middle East, but from Hillsborough and the Sunset Corridor and the Portland metro area. I'm calling all people who are hungry to know God. You can come and pray. You can meet with me. You can know me. And the way to do it is Jesus is saying, this temple is going to have to be destroyed. It's become a stumbling block that's pushing people out. But Jesus is going to be the true sacrifice. And Jesus, in very clear language, is saying, if you want to have faith in God, put your faith in me. Which is so incredibly revolutionary in his day and in our day. In our day, it's revolutionary to say, through one person, anyone can be rescued. But here's the only trick. There's only one named in all of heaven by which everybody must be rescued. It's the name of Jesus. 
It's the most radical claim, especially in a pluralistic society that we live in, where your way and my way and his way and her way, anyone's way is right. As long as you're sincere, God will know your heart and he'll bring you close. Absolutely not true. Jesus is saying, it isn't in the temple. It is in me. I am God come to earth to bring you close. Now, how do I know that? Look down at verse 22, and this is going to pull it all together. So we know now Jesus is a king, but he's not like you expect. He's doing something radical, revolutionary. And what does he do? He, he curses the thing that's not bearing fruit. The religious system in their day was fruitless. And so Jesus says, I have, not that it was a bad idea, it was just an incomplete idea. It didn't fulfill the purpose of being a place for all nations. So God in his wisdom says, okay, I'm going to send my son. And he's going to come, and he will be the temple. He'll be the place where people can meet with God. Verse 22. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself in the sea, and doesn't doubt in his heart, but believes what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Jesus is saying the heart of God and the place of worship is where prayer towards God is happening, where forgiveness is given, where you and I are in a place where we're so freed up by God that we encounter him and he does something in us and we're free to forgive other people, where faith is expressed, where sin is taken care of. Here's what Jesus does. And again, this may not seem radical to you, but his, his early hearers would have been shocked. The place where prayer is answered is temple. The place where forgiveness happens is through the sacrifice and temple. And now Jesus, looking at the mountains around him, the temple sits on a mountain. He's like, have faith in God. And if you really know God, if you really have right relationship with God, you can say to this mountain, this system, be thrown into the sea and it will be gone. He could have been looking at Herod's temple, uh, Herod's palace. Herod had a palace, kind of a safe haven, the king, on a hill that he constructed. He literally chopped part of a mountain off and placed a safe house in case the army attacked, he would be safe and he could surround himself with guards. Maybe Jesus is pointing towards that mountain saying, you know that safe house that that king thinks he has that's going to keep him? You could say to that mountain, be thrown into the sea and it will be done. What Jesus is saying is when your heart is to know God and when you know God, anything's possible. Really, that's the point of worship, to encounter God because in God, anything is possible. If you have faith in God, then that right place where you can offer prayer and, and be forgiven and offer forgiveness, Jesus is saying the temple is going to go away. It's not, the building is not going to be your safe house to meet with God. But just because the building isn't the center doesn't mean that you can't have access to God, which is why when Jesus is on the cross, and we'll get to the passage later, there's a curtain that's in the most holy place in the temple and it's torn in half and it's shattered and it's symbolic. And it says that in Jesus, anyone can have access to prayer answered, belief, growth, transformation, 
anyone can meet with God. And that's the beauty of the message of the gospel. That's the message we're here to proclaim, is that you can know God for yourself and encounter him, and it doesn't have to be in one building at one place at one time. Now, that is a lot to kind of chew on, and we can't think of all the implications tonight, but tonight I do want to think about a couple of implications that should hit home for us as a community. Uh, we're a two-year-old church uh, that's part of a 10-year-old church. So uh, a Jesus church on the west side used to be called Solid Rock. It started 10 years ago, Easter. Two years ago, we started here in, in Hillsboro. And what are we beginning to learn? I think two things that I get from this passage that we can lay claim to and, and, and think through as we grow in a new space with new opportunities to reach more people. The first thing is that church is for God. Uh, Jesus condemns the temple because it's supposed to be the place where God's honored and revered, but humans have a tendency to manipulate something good. Would you agree? We could take a good thing and mess it up. So we could take a great thing like called church, community, whatever you want to call it, this thing that we do, and we could make it about something other than God. And what Jesus is reminding the first century Jews, as well as reminding us, is that the place of worship, wherever that is, if that's in your home, if you're a part of a missional community and you invite people in your house and, and you get together and, and talk about scripture or love one another and pray, that is a place of worship. But that place, that atmosphere, it is for God. It should be a place where we can talk to God and wrestle with hard questions, where we can look at the scriptures and think about what God thinks about issues that matter to us. The whole thing is not about us. It is about God. But secondly, church is for people. This is where they really missed it. Uh, the, the early Jews in Jesus' day, they missed that the purpose of the temple was for everyone everywhere, and they really made it about them. So rather than being an open house to display God's power and to display God's goodness, it became a club for a few people with a sign saying, get out. And isn't that a picture of what church can become? Some of you have been a part of a, the church tradition for a long time. You, you've been burned because what's supposed to be beautiful and open and for people of any walk and any, and any spot and where you're welcomed and loved and we consider Jesus and it's about God. So church isn't about nothing or whatever you want it to be about. It's about Jesus. So if Jesus is the center of our community, we could mess it up and make it about leaders and buildings and programs and meetings instead of about encountering the reality of the risen Jesus. So as we enter this new chapter in this new spot, I think this text is so moving because it reminds me that what we're doing is not just meeting. This isn't just like a Sunday morning or Sunday evening routine. This is the spot where you can count on, because you know what? We got work, we got family, we got friends, we got life. Somewhere in there we sleep. <laughs> I don't a lot, but somewhere in there you sleep. But there should be space in your week Hopefully not just the space. Hopefully you're carving out space in the morning, at lunch, at night, somewhere in your day to connect with God. But this should be the place where you can know, know that you know that you know, I can meet with God and meet with people and leave all of my iPhone apps, except the Bible one, I can leave them to the side. I don't have to tweet. I don't have to answer email. If you are, God rebukes you. No, he doesn't. But you know, like I can just be in a spot and think about God. And this also should be a place where we're not just about us. 
And so it really hits home for me because you know what? The longer you do church, the more it can become about the people who come most often. And so let me, let me just tell you, my heart for you is big. And if you are hurting and you're in need and you want to connect with Jesus, this is a spot for you. And we are here for you and we want to serve you and we want to see you filled with the Spirit of God and doing God's stuff wherever you live. But you need to know that this is not just about you. And it's not just about me. This is about the people outside. This is about the people, to put it in Jesus' language, in the court of the Gentiles. They're thinking about Jesus, thinking about faith, but they're not sure yet. So if you're here and you don't necessarily trust Jesus, you're not, you're not, you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, you're welcome. Come, listen, ask questions, think about it, wrestle with it. If you're stumbling over something or you don't believe, you have every right to say, I doubt it. Will you help me in my doubt? Will you help me think this through? I want to know the way of God. You can come here and, and not believe it and be welcomed. But you also need to know that we as a community are not just about these gatherings. Part of what fuels us is about what we do Monday through Saturday. So we want to be a community that's out there in the court of Gentiles, so to speak. We're out there where people are and we're inviting people to consider Jesus. So our meeting space just is not liberty on a Sunday. Our meeting space is wherever we are together doing what Jesus has called us to do in the real world that we live in. We are a church that is for God, but we are a church that's for people. And so what we do in our homes and what we do in the coffee shops and what we do as we connect and love people in Jesus' name, that is church as much as this is church. And, and, and I think when we look at the heart of God towards people, that's what passages like this draws to. And so tonight, let's just think about where this sits with us as a community uh, we got a simple phrase we're, we're trying to think and mull over that simplifies what we're about. Um, we want to help people experience life in Jesus. We're a community that, that, is, that is dedicated to help people. Our goal is not just us getting better or feeling good. We want to help people. So what we do in our missional communities, in, in the marketplace, wherever you live, it's huge. We want to help people encounter Jesus. We don't want to just be nice to be nice and good neighbors. We believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And we want to help uh, people encounter uh, Jesus and the reality of who he is. We want to know his love and experience his transformation. And so tonight, I don't know where that sits with you, but I don't want to be like these leaders. And I don't want Jesus to look at our church two years from now, three years from now, five years from now, and say, guys, you started well. It was awesome at the beginning. It was about me. It was about people. But somewhere in the middle, it became about a building. It became about a program. It became about a routine. It became about coffee. It became about meeting my needs. I just pray that we're never that kind of church. I don't think we're that kind of community, but when I hear these warnings, it makes me realize I don't want to be like that. If that sits well with you and you're not yet a part of the Sunset family, this is the kind of mission we're driven to because this is the kind of king that we're called to serve. Well, in response, what we do is we, we consider the teachings of Jesus and then we do something about it. We're going to respond in worship. I'm going to invite the band where you're at. They're going to come back. And we're going to sing, not because that's the Christian thing to do. Because the best thing you can do when you hear stuff that is right, because it's from Scripture, our call is to respond. And so we put together some songs that hopefully will help you to respond in the way of Jesus. Tonight, if you're not yet following him, these songs are going to be about what Jesus has done and what Jesus will do.
tonight, the right response for you is if you're not yet following Jesus tonight, we want to invite you to come and follow him. Become not just a distant follower, but a worshiper. Say to Jesus tonight, I want to know you. You know my stuff. Deal with me. Deal with my stuff. Help me to follow you. And tonight, if that's your heart, he will do that in you and through you. But for the rest of us, maybe it's an attitude. Maybe it is something, a routine that is not in alignment. It's like a leaf, but there's no fruit. Maybe you're involved in stuff that's not bearing fruit. It's not drawing you to closeness with God. And maybe Jesus is pointing out those things tonight and saying, Jose, give me those things. They're like the temple that's supposed to produce fruit, but they're not. I want to reorient your life into things that are fruitful. Tonight, wherever you're at, I call you to follow this Jesus. Follow this Jesus. Why don't we pray? Let's close our eyes because that's the Christian thing to do. Not really. We want to close them because when I'm not, when I'm not looking at anyone else, I'm, my attention is on Jesus alone.